Hi, and welcome to Episode 8 of Immigration Briefs, a podcast that reviews the latest immigration news every week. I'm your host, Adam Frank. First, let me apologize for the long absence. I will endeavor to get an episode out every week or two weeks from now on. Because of the number of news stories this week, we will just be hitting the major stories and will not have a main topic. So let's dive right in. Our first story is about USCIS conducting the third H-1B lottery. While USCIS usually conducts, I'd say, at least two H-1B lotteries, the first one at the end of March or beginning of April, which is normal. That's the first lottery in which they pick the 65,000 regular cap H-1B cases as well as the additional 20,000 master's cap cases. And they'll usually do a second one a couple months later because of the need to get more cases in once they can see how many cases they're denying or people who don't file who were selected. In this year, they've actually started a third lottery. Apparently, either more people did not submit applications who were selected or there were a higher percentage of cases being denied or some combination therefore. Now, USCIS has not really been releasing numbers around the lotteries. For instance, how many cases were received or how many cases they're selecting for each lottery. So it's really impossible to figure out why a third lottery was required. But it should be noted that this third lottery is probably extremely small. So the first lottery would be at least 85,000 cases, probably slightly more, maybe closer to 100,000. The second lottery would be significantly less than that, and then this third lottery is even less than that. But we do not have exact numbers. Our second topic, which is related, which is H-1B holders in the U.S. dropped to the lowest level in decades. So the number of H-1B immigrants in the United States holding high-tech jobs just dropped the most in at least a decade this year amid travel and visa restrictions, even as job openings in the industry reached record highs. Foreign engineering and mathematic workers on the H-1B visa fell 12.6% in the fiscal year ending September 2021 compared to the previous year, according to Bloomberg News analysis of data from the U.S. Department of Labor. Comparing to pre-COVID numbers, the numbers were down 19%. It was the second consecutive annual decline for a segment of the workforce that has historically seen consistent job growth. The drop was largely due to a significant slowdown in visa processing during lockdowns and tightened immigration policies stemming from the pandemic. Also, the initial scalebacks when the pandemic first hit played into this decline as well. But realistically, it has only had a lasting impact, considering the current resurgence and the number of job openings, because of the aforementioned visa shutdowns. Hopefully, with those shutdowns over, or mostly over, this will pick up again. Our next topic is revisiting the H-4 EAD lawsuit. In the last episode, which is now a little while ago, 
I reported on the settlement of a lawsuit against USCIS regarding the adjudication of extensions of EADs for H-4 visa holders. A new article came out this week which discussed not just the legal underpinnings of the decision, but some of the issues. The biggest issue is that only those in valid H-4 status, not those with pending extensions, can take advantage of the automatic extension. So what do I mean by this? Imagine a person in H-4 status. Both they and their spouse, who is in H-1B status, filed the renewals six months prior to their expiration. The H-1B is approved. However, at the time of the current H-4 expiring, the H-4's extension request and EAD renewal request are both still pending. This person could not take advantage of the automatic extension of the EAD, even if their H-4 extension was approved the next day. Why is this? Because the terms that USCIS put forth state that the person's H-4 status must have been valid at the time the EAD expired. Since it was not, while they were here in valid status, they were awaiting the renewal. Even though the H-4, ext H-4 extension was pending, the person does not meet the standard. Personally, I think a good argument could be made that once the H-4 extension is proved, the person was in H-4 status at the time the EAD expired. This is because, according to USCIS, the approval goes back to the time of the expiration of the previous status. However, USCIS has not stated this, and there is no guarantee that they would also follow this logic. This is a major issue, because for most H-4s, their status and their EAD expire at the same time, and that day is usually the same day the H-1B status expires. Also, USCIS right now is routinely taking more than six months to adjudicate an extension of status. When you take into account that you can only file a renewal six months before the expiration, this means many people in H-4 status will not be able to take advantage of this new rule. One remedy would be for USCIS to simply adjudicate any H-4 extension with the H-1B extension. In this way, if the H-1B is premium processed, so will the H-4, and there should be no issues. However, USCIS has not agreed to this. So while the lawsuit does solve one issue, it leaves a lot of people still in limbo. In terms of why USCIS made this roadblock, it's because when USCIS first received the authority to automatically extend EADs, their interpretation was that it should only apply in those situations in which there was no underlying status application that had to be approved in order to actually approve the EAD. For example, those who file an I-45, an adjustment of status application, the I-45 is not required to be adjudicated prior to the EAD application being approved. Therefore, applying the automatic renewal in that situation wouldn't depend on them adjudicating a status application first. Contrast this to an H-4 for whom the extension of status must be approved before the EAD card can be issued. Because of this, and because USCIS was unwilling to change their interpretation, and let's remember, this is only their interpretation, 
Only cases in which the H4 extension was already adjudicated can qualify for this automatic extension. The next topic deals with the proclamation suspending entry of those who pose a risk to transmit Omicron being rescinded. President Biden rescinded his executive order suspending entry of those traveling from Botswana, Eswatini, Lesotho, Malawi, Mozambique, Namibia, South Africa, and Zimbabwe. Overall, I would consider this a good move as the restriction, especially at this time, is not accomplishing anything. We still have our vaccination and testing requirements for those entering the U.S., and Omicron has now spread worldwide, making these type of targeted suspensions meaningless. Next, we're going to look at Black American citizens suing ICE over illegal imprisonment. A U.S. citizen sued ICE recently for his illegal imprisonment. What happened is that he was arrested by California police, and he told them that he was a U.S. citizen. He has been for over 50 years. They ignored him and reported him to ICE and turned him over to the contractors despite his continued protests. ICE then continued to detain him, ignoring his pleas that he was a U.S. citizen and refused to investigate it. The detention and possibly his deportation would have continued if not for the intervention of an immigration attorney. While this may seem like a simple mistake, the issue seems to be bigger. While blacks make up 7% of non-U.S. citizens, they make up 20% of those who are facing deportation on criminal grounds. They are also charged higher bonds, way more likely to be put in solitary confinement, and in general are treated much worse by ICE officials. These systemic issues need to be addressed by ICE and certainly do serve as convincing evidence as to why jurisdictions should not cooperate with ICE and turn over prisoners on a routine basis. Next, we are going to discuss Governor Greg Abbott's Operation Lone Star backfiring on him. Since summer of 2021, Governor Greg Abbott of Texas directed state troopers and Texas National Guard members to go to the border and arrest those entering the U.S. without documents for trespassing. What's the problem with this? I'm sure many people would look at it and say, oh, well, that's a good thing. He's arresting the people. They'll get deported. Everything will be great. So then again, what is the problem? For those entering the U.S. and seeking asylum, nothing. For the governor's stated cause of stopping people from entering the U.S. without documents, there is plenty wrong. First, by having the Texas Troopers or State National Guard arrest these people as opposed to ICE or Border Patrol, and yes, ICE and Border Patrol are both arresting people at the border. The undocumented immigrants are now in and in is in quotes, the United States, and have the right to have their cases heard by an immigration judge. If the governor had allowed ICE, Border Patrol, to do their jobs, they would have been subjected to summary expulsion back to Mexico to wait for their asylum case or to their home country if no asylum case was found in their situation. Furthermore, the charge being issued, trespass, has not effect, no effect on their asylum case or really any immigration benefit. Therefore, that doesn't act as a deterrent either. So overall, the policy is actually encouraging immigrants 
to enter Texas without documents, not the opposite. Also related to this is that the trespass cases in many instances are being dropped as the people were not actually on private property when arrested. Or if they were, in many cases, there was nothing posted on the property about not trespassing. Just this week, a district judge in Travis County, Texas, ruled that the criminal trespass charge will be thrown out as it violates the supremacy cause, that the federal government is in charge of immigration enforcement, not the states. This may be the first of many cases being thrown out. So in essence, all this has done is allowed people to stay in the U.S. and seek asylum, the opposite of what Governor Abbott was trying to do. Lastly, we're going to discuss about a slavery ring in Georgia. Recently, there was a ring in Georgia that was using H-2A visas to bring workers to the U.S. temporarily for agricultural purposes. But then they kept them in the U.S. to dig onions with their bare hands for 20 cents a bucket. And they used threats of violence and guns to keep them in line. The group managed to reap more than $200 million from the scheme. They were charged with kidnapping, raping, and attempting to kill some of the workers of the families, or their families too. At least two workers died during this ring. should be noted that the entire $200 million they earned came solely from the unpaid wages to these workers. Fortunately, while the H-2A agricultural program actually surged under Trump, as many of the big agricultural people are his supporters, Purdue, etc., enforcement actions were not conducted on the H-2A agricultural program, which led to widespread abuses of the program, including the one I just detailed above. While I certainly have no issues with the ag agricultural program or any immigration program, the U.S. government does need to enforce the programs to ensure employers are not abusing them. This holds true for the H-2A program, for the H-1B program, for the EAD programs, for all programs. That's all for this week. Thank you for joining me for another episode. As always, if you have any questions or comments, please send an email to info at immigrationbriefs.com. As always, music is provided by Steve Combs. The song is News Breaks. And I hope to talk to you again next week. Until then, ciao.